0: Did you know a podcast episode like this can provide literally dozens of marketing content assets for your business? It's brought to you by Content Monster, your go-to for engaging marketing content, like this podcast or remote video production. It's not just a podcast, it's your marketing powerhouse. Visit contentmonsta.com to learn more. That's contentmonsta.com. Welcome to the Security on Cloud podcast. Brought to you by Anishin, where cloud security and compliance are top of mind. Join the conversation with your hosts, John Vecchi and Scott Emo. Hey, everybody. You're listening to the Security on Cloud podcast live on Anishin Radio. I'm your
1: host, John Vecchi. And I'm Scott Emo. You know, there is so much going on in the security arena today that it's hard to keep up we hope that we make it just a little bit easier for you to stay informed and keep pace with the latest trends and security topics.
0: You know, that's right. There's so much to cover in the security and cloud landscape. We always want to bring you the most interesting guests and topics on this podcast, as well as great discussions about current security concerns and issues that could affect you in moving and securing your apps in the cloud.
1: And with that, I'd like to introduce today's guest. He's a 26 year veteran in the computer security industry known to many on the inside by his handle, rsnake. He started his career at eBay, where he was responsible for anti-fraud and anti-phishing technologies. His work at eBay was later built into every modern web browser and is now protecting every internet user. As a white hat hacker at SecTheory, Theory, he hacked into the back ends of over 2,100 banks, credit card processors, flight control systems, and scatter control networks. Most recently, his corporate intelligence platform, Outside Intel, was acquired by BitDiscovery, where he's now the CTO. He's a floating CISO for many companies and sits on advisory boards of multiple technology and security companies. His hacker.org website was at one point responsible for a third of all top-ranked web vulnerabilities. He's also authored a security column in dark reading for years. It's our pleasure to have with us today my friend, Robert Hansen.
2: Friend. Oh, now we're friends. I don't know.
1: <laughs> I thought, well, I thought, uh, I thought that sounded good, at least. <laughs>
2: uh, no, sc- you Scott, you're definitely, definitely a good friend. Um, yeah, I'm doing great. Uh, and for those of you who don't know, Scott and I have worked together for, uh, I don't know, probably about wow. 20, 15, 20 years ago. I guess
1: was, 15 20 yeah, years ago in security like and uh, and when when uh, when cloud was just a uh, was was just a dream.
2: Yeah, that I mean, really time. was when people talked about it back then we were like yeah that's kind of wishful thinking.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> but here well, we are. Aren't we? Yeah, yep. we no, are.
0: exactly. Well, well look uh, Robert thanks for joining us today and and of you know it's this is this is a treat um for me and Scott. I mean over the course of my career in this industry and and I'm sure Scott's as well. Uh, I've had the privilege to work with and and, and actually help build some you know top security research and threat teams at at places like McAfee and Zscaler and Solera, Bluecoat Checkpoint and you know the rest. Um, and it's always represented one of the most fascinating areas for for me in security. Um, so look for our audience, uh, maybe we can start with a really simple question, right? And how did you become a security researcher and and white hat hacker? And what does that mean to even become that, uh, you know, in, in your life?
2: Yeah, I, I think it, it didn't start so much white hat. It started just, you know, being a miscreant kid and trying to figure out how things worked. And, and, uh, the very first piece of code I ever wrote on my own was a Trojan horse. The very first thing I ever broke into on my own was a bank. Um, you know, I didn't start simple. I went for the big stuff. um, And after I'd done some of that, uh, I started a um, nonprofit called EHAP, Ethical Hackers Against Pedophilia. And we had one of the largest busts of child pornographies. At that time, I think it might've been even the largest bust in history. And that's when I kind of turned, you know, sort of changed my whole attitude towards everything. And I just became a white hat. I'm like, I cannot be doing this and that other thing at the same time. And so I switched just overnight and I'm just like, okay, I'm going to start doing this for the good guys. And, um, And that's around the same time that I actually met Scott. Uh, It was probably a year or two after that. Um, And uh, I really was uh, more on the product management side, but I had been doing security in one form or another for quite a while, even at that point, and later went on to eBay and and so on and i guess from my perspective i've always thought the most interesting parts of security are the infrastructure the things that make things work and so i focused on really big picture things like programming languages and operating systems and browsers and networks and so when people say like, "Oh, you found a bug? Like, what? What's the CVE number on it?" I'm like, "No, no, no, no. That's not the kind of thing I work on. The, the kinds of thing I work on, you, you have to forklift upgrade the internet to fix, you know."
1: <laughs> so that's kind of how I got my start. <laughs> well, you you talk about infrastructure and cloud is one of the you know is is basically today's you know largest infrastructure, right? So you know when you, you know, when you see you know and and I'm going to shift to the conversation of cloud and so what do you see as the biggest security issues in in the cloud
2: yeah I, you know it really is the same thing as hosting in your own environment for a, in a lot of ways and so the the same kinds of things that plague you when you're doing it yourself plague you in cloud only a lot of people assume that in the cloud things are done for you but they, a lot of times they aren't done for you like for instance, configuration management is probably the single biggest problem um, uh, simple things like do you have ACLs open to the internet Now there's no one telling you hey your ACLs are messed up. there's no like centralized audit out there that can say, hey this is all messed up because everyone's ACLs are there's their needs are specific to whatever they're doing and so there's no right or wrong way to do it but there's certainly a, a way to get hacked <laughs> uh similarly you know how people uh construct you know their uh, wherever they're caching or whatever their you know the s3 buckets you know it's like well it's, it's kind of like the equivalent of an old like apache uh you know uh open directory or something like. You shouldn't have it open, but you have it open. It's easy configuration change, but people just don't think about it in that way. They they think it's all done correctly for them, and it's definitely not. And so, uh, I think that's probably the single biggest gap. But then, you know, secondarily, it's it's that administration of it. You know, some someone's got to get into this thing in some way. And once upon a time, the old you know model of a data center. Uh, you could literally have a guy just go over to the rack, and that was the only way to access that particular machine. You could have two or three knock monkeys just sitting there typing in commands all day. Uh, it's a it's an awful job, but you could do it. Nowadays that's just not possible. You're not sending people to you know Amazon to go sit down in a rack somewhere. You know, this has all got to be done from some people's house, especially in the day of days of COVID. Uh and so people need to be able to Uh, contact these machines typically over a vpn or ssh uh, but oftentimes they have administration consoles that are hanging out there and they're just not paying attention to the fact that you know i'm reaching these things can somebody reach me and then reach those things or can someone bypass what i think is Mm -hmm. you know good restrictions and just walk right through my network so it's all that kind of configuration and administration mess i think is probably the biggest risk
0: yeah, then, and and I think we'll 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 certainly talk a little bit about some of that some of that risk. And and just a little bit ago, you mentioned kind of the days in COVID, and and certainly it's interesting times, right? It, it's like I say, we, we woke up one day in 2020, and work was uh, something we did as opposed to a place we went. Um, and so everything moved kind of to to remote and offline, and and so you know we always talk about how that had an impact on cloud adoption you know cloud digital transformation cloud and what do you see i mean do you do you see actually a a transformation driven by the covid pandemic to the cloud and and what are some of the things people should keep in in mind if that is the case right
2: yeah, th- this is a really, really interesting question. There's a lot. There's a lot of nuance to it. So, uh, my day job is actually the CTO of a company called Bit Discovery. Um, it was the company that got acquired. We talked about it a little bit uh, in the intro. And uh, one of the cool things about the data sets that we have is we can actually see trends over time for you know. different classes of industries or whatever so we can take the fortune 500 and just ask the question from data point a to data point b do we see a migration into the cloud do we see people moving into the cloud and the the weird nuance to that is yes and no they are certainly putting new infrastructure in the cloud that is not a question Uh, is definitely happening and and a pretty accelerating rate actually however the question, are they moving to the cloud? Is a uh, almost entirely the answer is no. There are some apps that are definitely moving in the cloud, but for the most part, if something isn't in the cloud, they're not moving it. They're just it's just going to stay wherever it's at, and it's just going to live there forever. It's going to be this dog that never gets updated, and no one ever thinks about it. No one cares and feeds for it. Just sits there languishing over time. So. So from that perspective, I don't see people moving to the cloud in the most strictest sense, but people are building a lot of net new services in the cloud. Uh, to your other question about like what, how does COVID sort of change in people's uh, reaction to the cloud or moving into it, I think uh, this is really funny because right now we have this gigantic ice storm happening in Texas uh, and it's knocking out you know power, knocking out roads. And there's stuff I need to do in the data center, but I'm not driving up there. There's just no way I'm driving all the way out to the data center. It's not by the airport. It's probably like 20 miles from here or whatever. Uh, but for all the stuff that's cloud-based uh, that I can reach accessible from the internet, no problem. Yeah, you know, I can just SSH right in. And COVID is just a sort of macroscopic version of that same thing. People aren't really able to leave their houses. So are they going to just stop working? Of course not. They got to get stuff done. So uh the number one thing is from a compliance perspective a lot of people were not allowed to be in the cloud uh for whatever reason you know they they have some sla or uh there's something that says they're not supposed to do it or whatever so i think very quickly a lot of companies had to figure out how to be compliant in the cloud like overnight uh, which is kind of interesting number two um there's a lot of you know cloud-based solutions to solving things like Azure Trust, for instance. So now we're going to have to basically buttonhook everybody through the cloud and then back out to the internet uh, to do stuff like making sure people aren't getting malware on their computers. Um, And there's already companies that you mentioned, Zscaler used to work there uh, that already kind of handle some of this stuff. Um, And I see a lot of companies going, ah, crap, we really have to do this today. Like not... Not, not six months from now. Not a year from now. We got to solve this problem right now. Um, a lot of BYOD problems. Like, well, are you really going to have all the sensitive information on your computer? Or why don't you just use Citrix and put it all, on you know, put it all in, in the cloud? There's no reason you have to have this on your personal yep. computers. <clears throat> so, a lot more of that kind of getting stuff off of your local environment. So the local environment isn't the isn't the biggest uh, choke point and risk in people's networks.
1: That, that's a great point because in fact, I um, one of the questions that I wanted to um, you know to ask you was how you know how cloud security was different from you know, like the old data center model. And you mentioned you know remote access um, was is a major major one in terms of security. Um, one of the things we that, that I'd like to double click on is like you know, from a like maybe from a dev um, a DevOps or deving uh, Dev's perspective, just developing applications. Is there um is there anything people you think should think about differently in terms of of, um you know developing applications you know for the cloud as opposed to when they were you know on-prem being able to just walk over to that rack and you know and uh, you know access it is there anything they've got to think about that they ought to you know that uh, our listeners ought to know about
2: yeah there's a lot and it's actually more more pro security than negative security thankfully um, so one thing is uh, caching turns out to be wildly more efficient in the cloud. Um, you know, pre- previously, you'd have to cache locally and there'd be a big infrastructure cost associated with it. Now there's companies like Cloudflare out there with uh, basically key value pairs. And you can basically put your entire website, it literally the entire thing, dynamic website uh, inside Cloudflare and literally not have a backend behind it at all. Uh, which is really crazy. Um, I've seen entire websites done in a caching layer uh, and dynamic looking, like fully functional. Um, you don't get to post to it and do stuff to it, but you can still navigate it and it still acts and feels like it's you know, interactive or whatever. Uh, so that's really, really compelling because that makes the surface area of attack much, much smaller. It's also much easier to scale up. So the traditional denial service of just a basic overload of your site now... Uh, it's good and bad. You can scale up very quickly, which makes it very difficult for an adversary to uh, find um, and attack one particular part of a network and take it down as easily because you can scale up t- to meet that demand. Um, <clears throat> one thing I really like about the cloud is the ability to overwrite a site that's been compromised so you basically have a known good state like this this particular instance looks good right now and I don't know about it in in a week from now I have no idea if it's good or bad so who cares don't worry about stressing out about what's on it or what's changed about it just install it over and just keep going like just reinstall it and just get it back up and running so all that Docker container stuff Kubernetes there's really no reason that you have to worry too much about the site staying compromised Uh, it will get recompromised, which is a different problem, but staying compromised, uh, those compromises tend to go away very quickly. And then the entire idea of um, like serverless compute um, and microservices, that has definitely improved the overall uh, ability to compartmentalize code. So instead of having everything being in this one monolithic code base, like you used to have, now you can you can send out these microservices that have very limited access. Like, uh, like a, a simple example would be like a DAO, a database access layer where you say, okay, here's a hash and a username. Tell me if it is valid or not valid. If it's valid, great, then I'll set a cookie. If it's not valid, then I don't, <clears throat> then whatever, uh, then it's then I can't do anything. That means that the code, the monolithic, the original monolithic code base, the thing that you call login, the login page, no longer can say, hey, select star from the database and give me all the database hashes. I can only ask one question at a time. And that makes it much harder to compromise, like wildly, wildly more complicated. So there's a lot of really cool tricks you can do in the cloud that traditionally were much more difficult. <clears throat> and now they're almost just kind of built into the way you design things.
0: That's very cool. And, you know, Scott mentioned in his previous question, kind of the term DevOps, right? And, you know, teams that are now developing applications and 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 now, you know, in the cloud, securing workloads in the cloud and kind of bringing those applications out in in to their customers and and so uh, you know we don't want to dive there, there's uh, you know the everyone's saturated a bit with with the solar winds attack at this point um, but one of the things that i found interesting in the attack that that might be uh, um relevant in in the discussion about cloud security and devops and devsecops is just the idea that that what um i think crowdstrike actually found that that uh, the attackers actually you know created a piece of malware a backdoor called sunspot that they used to actually breach the build process the the build environment or in some cases some might call it the cicd pipeline which then they were able to insert sunburst uh, for that into Orion, and and on we go with with the rest that's history. But what do you see with that? Given the whole idea of, you know, shifting security left, the idea that security is oftentimes an inhibitor to these teams who are building dynamically these applications, bringing them to the cloud, um, is that a new attack vector that that we should be concerned about as we move forward in 2021?
2: I certainly wouldn't call it new. Um, It has certainly been around at least a decade at least probably more more than that probably quite a bit mm-hmm. more than that um, there's definitely um, issues in the supply chain um, and that can come mm-hmm. from a vendor uh, or it can be s- just something that's totally nef- just off the shelf just you know works fine one day and suddenly something happens it phones home to the wrong thing or some server somewhere gets compromised and suddenly you're uploading a malicious binary um, I had a buddy of mine, um, he was legitimately, I don't know if he ended up doing it. I never, I never followed up on it, but he's like, I want to install malware into NPM packages. Just, I want to do it. Um, and I want to do a lot because I want to prove that people will just do this thing. I've had another buddy of mine said, he wanted to do the same thing with Docker, uh, Docker containers, just put malware in there and have people run them. And they're not going to check. They're not going to look at the detail of what's going on and see if is this thing, you know, mining Bitcoin or whatever, they're just going to have it run. And it seems like it works and it's just going to work. I had another friend talk about doing the same thing with AMI. Mm -hmm. Uh, AMI is, um, you know, Hey, this thing runs WordPress. Great. That's what I want. I want a WordPress AMI, click the button, run it. And they don't have any idea what's going on under the hood. So um, now those are all examples where it started off bad. Like the, the maintainer was bad. Uh, but there's lots of other variants of that where people are going along one day, everything works fine, and then all of a sudden the package they had was the maintainer for whatever reason lost control, or you know just you know allowed the wrong person to insert a little you know, one or two lines of code, and you know it did something much more complicated and much more impossible for them to identify unless they were really good at auditing code, and all of a sudden they've got this little mi- micro backdoor that can be used for all kinds of stuff. And it's very hard to know which is which um, because, you know, code can be obfuscated to the point where even the people who originally wrote it may not know what it does anymore. Uh, It just gets too Uh complicated. Like, like uh, Dan Gere probably had one of the best quotes about this. Um, I was at a dinner with him once and, And uh, he was saying, like, when I get a computer and it's fresh off the boat, you know, just got there, um, I can tell you what's on it. I can tell you what's running on it. I can tell you what the operating system does. I can tell you the software it's on it, et cetera. The second I plug that thing into the Internet, I have no idea what's happened anymore. It's downloaded all these packages. My browser starts doing stuff and cookies and JavaScript and blah, blah, blah. And there's just no way to keep track of it Mm -hmm. after it's been up and running for a while. And in cloud, it's just the same. In fact, in many ways, worse because a lot of uh, DevOps people are sort of hard-coded to run this script and then this thing will magically happen. And if you actually look at the script, it's just a, you know, sudo, some bash script. So it's a running as root uh, and it runs some bash script that pulls some stuff down from GitHub. And did you audit that thing? Did anyone audit that thing? Um, yeah, it seems like it works when somebody put it on, you know, some forum, like, hey, it worked for me when I did blah. But it's, it's pretty dangerous, actually, the way this current DevOps people think about the pipeline.
1: Well, so um, Robert, so being, being a threat researcher, what would, you know, it, it, with, with all the issues that you just kind of brought up in that, in, in, in that last question, like what should a, a DevOps, you know, individual think about when, you know, when he's coding an application, what, uh, what, what types of things should he make sure that, that, that they do um, in the process to make sure that they're not, um, you know, uh, they're, they're not going south.
2: Well, unfortunately, there aren't a whole lot of great answers. Number one, audit the code. Audit, audit it as much as possible as with as much as you can afford to audit it because obviously you, there's diminishing returns. Number two, understanding the, the surface area as much as possible because when you're installing stuff, what you generally don't think about is, hey, I've got this test install. I've got this dev install. I've got this random other thing sitting there that's, that's also vulnerable, that's also just not protected in the same way because you want your you know, marketing team to take a look at it before you push it to prod or whatever. So it's not behind the firewall or it's not behind the web application firewall or whatever. And, so, and then the third is compartmentalization. So this comes back to the zero trust thing. Like really nothing that you're doing should trust anything else. And as much as possible, if so, you should assume that every single piece of code that you've written Uh, or that you've downloaded will eventually become malicious. And once that information is uh, known to the attacker, what can they do with it? Is there anything they can pivot to, or is that pretty much it? And they're stuck there in their little bubble uh, because that really definitely matters. Um, And the more you can assume that people are compromised. In fact, that's how I built hackers.org once upon a time. Every single thing assumed every single other thing was going to be bad. Uh, if i was you know using my website or whatever my browser had to assume that everything about the website was compromised uh, the website assumed that i was compromised um the operating system assumed that the the database and the web application were both bad the database assumed that somebody was had local access etc cetera, etc cetera. so everything was built with the assumption that everything else was going to be a problem And we survived, you know, tens and tens tens of thousands of attacks uh, over its lifetime. Uh, We were getting many, many hundreds or thousands of attacks per day, every day for years. And the only reason to survive that was not because we had great code. Our code was crap. We were running WordPress 2.2. What saved us was by virtue of this zero (laughs) trust concept, like nothing trusted anything else.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, right? I mean, we've seen zero trust now come from just, you know what people call the buzzword to it's real. Um, and, and I think it's an approach that's, that's getting implemented. Um, and, and so it's, it, it sounds like it's probably good advice, zero trust approach, zero trust security, whether it's zero trust access and East West traffic and all the things you kind of uh, care about, um, you know, in today's world, is it safe to say that's smart for people to think about zero trust technologies?
2: I think, Trust in general is a vulnerability. Um, and mm-hmm. the more things that you have to trust, the more likely you are to be vulnerable. So if you unwind that and say it in reverse, just say, don't trust anything. And then you'll be a much, much better position in terms of security. Uh, there's really no reason that you need to be doing this extra fun, cool widgety thing. If there's a way to do it, that doesn't have to involve a third party. Like, like I see a lot of people phoning home and pulling in jQuery, for instance, like, but why? Why are you pulling the current version of jQuery off of jQuery.com instead of just pulling it down to local? Uh, you can have a little cron job to say, hey, is this the current version of jQuery and update? There's no reason you have to go pull this from a third-party website, but that it's not part of the developer mantra. Developers are trying to build things quickly. They're not really thinking about these third-party dependencies. They're not thinking about these APIs that they pull in, that they... Like a simple question, like what if this API does something you didn't expect it to do? Do you have any error logic to handle that? Like a simple question, like what if the what if it's not there anymore? How does your application handle that? Just simply not being there, what if it goes away? Or what if it gives you too much information? Or what, what about not enough? Or what if it's badly formatted? Or, you know, a hundred other questions. And then you start getting to the crux of not trusting things. You're like, okay, well, I better verify what I'm getting in return. It's be- it better be good data. If it isn't, I better have a good fallback.
0: Right. That's that's fantastic advice. And, and you know, we've covered a lot and relative to, you know, the question around, you know, is the build environment going to be a new vector? Your, your response is true, right? Well, it's, it's been one for, for a long, long time. There are so many vectors that continue to be leveraged and exploited. There are new techniques, tactics, procedures, you know, exploiting those. When you when you look, Robert, today, like in 2021, as we move into this year, are there certain ones, you know, that just funnel to the top as kind of top ones that either are coming back around or are just kind of, you know, they just kind of surface at the top of your head as, man, these are probably some of the top things that are kind of happening right now and uh, and will probably continue to happen, you know, through this year and onward, right? So
2: I I am extremely pragmatic when it comes to stuff like this. Like a lot of hackers like to get prophetic and whatever. I I just look at where the money is. So the money, if you look at the insurance industry, the things that they're spending uh, their own dollars on uh, because they get compromised, uh, they are web-based attacks, their RDP, and their email. Those are the ways that people get in. Um, you shouldn't have remote desktop protocol running. If you, if you do, they're probably not going to ensure you, yeah, you, you're probably going to get compromised through your email or through your website. Um, <clears throat> so if you're doing a good job on those three fronts, you're probably going to
0: mm-hmm. survive the bulk of most attacks. There you go. Listeners. You heard it. You heard it directly from Robert. So heed that advice, right, Scott?
1: That was yeah. It's excellent. And I also heard, um, and I'm going to quote you again, Robert, because this was this was money. Um, trust in general is a vulnerability. That that was that was beautiful. I actually had to write that one down. That was, that was mm-hmm. beautiful. So, um, Robert, we're running short on time. Uh, is there anything you'd like your listeners to know about? Um, is there something you're working on that maybe they're they're interested in? Um, is there a, yeah. something you'd like to yes. let our listeners know?
2: Yeah. So bit discovery is the current thing I'm working on. And the entire premise of the company is it's a very weird thing to say, but most companies don't know what they own. <clears throat> they don't know what websites they've got out there. Uh, they have no idea what their infrastructure looks like. They have no idea what the service levels of those uh, different services are running. Uh, they don't know where their vulnerabilities are because they don't even know where their assets are. <clears throat> so Bit Discovery is all about finding those weird websites, those weird you know, IP printers or telephones or whatever's on the public internet that, that a company owns that they don't realize they own, and basically surfacing those things so they can query it and making a querying language around it that allows them to ask simple questions like, Hey, are we GDPR compliant across all of our websites? Hey, are we, is any of our websites phoning home and sending out malware to somebody or, you know, Hey, do we have a CVE as anywhere across all these websites? Common vulnerabilities that any, any scanner could find. It's not like complicated stuff, but A scanner is only going to find it if they know that their website exists in the first place. So we're just basically helping companies find that the assets exist, whether they're in the cloud or whether they're in your data center somewhere or under some guy's desk at the office or whatever. And basically making those things publicly accessible so that uh, other companies can find it if they're trying to do ins- do insurance modeling on your company, or you can find it if you're trying to protect yourself, or a red team can find it if they're trying to find vulnerabilities in your site to to show you where your issues are, that, that kind of thing. So, yeah, bitdiscovery.com. If uh, if any of you're interested, uh, please let me know. I'll I'll give you like a f-
0: you know a free inventory or whatever. That's fantastic. Robert, this has been, it's just fascinating and so insightful. Thanks so much for joining us today. And if any of our listeners want to get in touch with you, is there a way for them to, to reach out to you? Do you have a social site or a handle or anything that, 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 you know, our listeners uh, can reach out to you?
2: Yeah. Um, I'm a, I write pretty often on blog.bitdiscovery.com and, uh, on Twitter, I am at our snake.
0: Thanks, Robert. It's been great having you today.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: And remember, the Security on Cloud podcast is brought to you by Anishin, the leading cloud security and compliance automation provider delivering the fastest path to security and compliance in the cloud. Thanks
0: again to our guests, to Robert Hansen. Until we meet again, I'm John Vecchi. And I'm Scott Emo. We'll see you next time on Anishin Radio. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Security on Cloud podcast. If you like the show, Be sure to subscribe so that you can join us again for another episode. And for tips, show notes, and more episodes, check us out at Anishan.com. See you next time. a podcast episode like this can provide literally dozens of marketing content assets for your business it's brought to you by content Monster, your go-to for engaging marketing content like this podcast or remote video production it's not just a podcast it's your marketing powerhouse visit contentmonsta.com to learn more that's content m-o-n-s-t-a.com